If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I ask that you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, I'd invite you to use the Pew Bible in front of you. Our passage this morning is on page 957. And if you don't have a Bible at home in English that you can understand, we invite you to take this one as our gift to you. Uh, And we would ask that you would read it, uh, because we believe that it is the source of life and truth for us. As you're turning there, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're walking in the desert. And you've been walking in the desert for a couple of days now, and your skin is blistered and scorched. And your mouth is dry to the point where you're afraid to shut it, because if you were to open it again, you know that excruciating pain would follow. And you look off through the haze and through the distance, and you see a vague shape that has the shade of blue. And so you begin to labor in that direction. You begin to work in that direction. But every step that you take, the image that is fixed in your mind, that's fixed in your eyes, begins to shrink to the point where you arrive at the location and you come to terms with what you've realized about 100 yards back, that there is nothing but sand here. There is no water. There's no life. It was a mirage. I want to submit to you this morning that false teaching within the life of a church is much like a mirage. It gives us promises of health and prosperity. It gives us promises of satisfaction and security, but it cannot deliver. It is worthless. In fact, it is death. And so the question is, if this is false teaching, well, where do we find our security? Where do we find life as a Christian? Well, in our passage this morning, Peter makes a very clear claim about where the people of God find life, find security. See, in our passage this morning, Peter is writing his last words He has an awareness based on what Jesus has told him that his time is short. And so he pins this letter to a group of churches. Seems to be a follow-up letter to 1 Peter. So with these things in mind, our main focus this morning will be this. What I think our passage teaches. And so if you don't remember anything else, remember this. God has spoken. And continues to speak through his word. God has spoken and continues to speak through his word. So therefore, listen, believe, and obey. God has spoken and continues to speak through his word. So therefore, listen, believe, and obey. And we'll consider this idea with two main sections. Verses 16 through 18, we'll consider an eyewitness account. In the verses 19 to 21, we'll look at a more sure word. So listen to God's word as I read 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your aid this morning. I ask that you would help me so that in no way would I detract from your word, that I would make your word unclear, or I would say anything untrue about your word. Father, aid me by your spirit insofar as if even I have prepared something that is unhelpful or untrue or even hurtful, I pray that you would edit it even now to make clear, to shine a light on your word so that we may understand its purpose, its intent, its security, its steadfastness, because it is, in fact, your word. Aid me in my weakness and my inability. And may this be for the good of this particular body, for this church, and ultimately for the glory of your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So Peter starts this section by addressing the claims that are being made about his authority and the apostles' authority and their testimony. So when he says, for we, when we see the we's in this passage, he's generally referring to him and the other apostles. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. And we'll get back to this idea of myths in a second, but what is he talking about? When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's referring to this idea that Jesus will return again. He's not talking about his first coming, he's talking about his second coming. And he's specifically describing it as a powerful return. The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's evident by Peter's writing that false teaching is creeping up within the church. And there's some letters in the New Testament that don't make clear what the false teaching is, and so it's just meant to be applied generally. But 2 Peter is very specific on the false teaching that's coming in. There's these guys within the church who are saying Jesus is not returning a second time. Jesus is not returning as these apostles are claiming. And so what they're saying is, Yeah, it sounds good. It's a cleverly devised myth, but that's all it is. It's a myth. It's a fable. And so it's not worth considering to be true. Well, if this is the case, if the assumption of the false teachers and the people they're fooling is correct, well, then the natural implication is, well, why do I care about the conduct of my life if I don't have to fear judgment and retribution, right? Shouldn't we live it up now if I don't have any consequences for my actions? I should pursue what feels good, what serves me now, because ultimately I don't have a judge that, will, that I'll have to answer to. And this is the nature of sin, right? We don't have to teach the child 
that he can reach for the cookie jar when mom is in the backyard and not likely to round the corner. We don't, when we don't fear judgment, when we don't fear retribution or consequences for our actions, then we're emboldened to do anything and everything that we want. And this seems to be what's happening within this letter, okay? So they're, they're pursuing ungodliness because they don't fear God's judgment. See, and we know this is the case. We look in our own lives and we see this, that when we don't believe judgment or consequences comes for our sin, then sin certainly seems like the easy and more satisfactory choice. So he's specifically referring to Jesus' second coming, saying, we're not following myths when we're teaching you about Jesus' coming. Okay? This isn't something we made up. This isn't something that we cleverly devised. Uh, but he even goes on to give us evidence for why Jesus is coming. And his evidence for the second coming of Jesus is in his first coming, as we'll see in just a moment. But these false teachers, they're coming in, they're saying, yeah, the apostles are making convincing claims, but ultimately it's hogwash. And the reason they're saying this, and we'll discuss this more in just a moment, is because of the state of the church as it stands at this time. So Peter's letter is probably written around 65 AD, give or take a couple of years, about 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. So Jesus has been gone for 30 years, and they're already doubting that Jesus will return. So we sometimes will just automatically assume, yeah, Jesus is coming back, but we need to understand that we are susceptible to this type of false teaching even today, 2,000 years later. That's why Peter will go on to later in this letter say, God does not count days the same, th- same way that we count them. So when you say that God is acting slow, God is not acting slow. He will return as he has said he will. So what's Peter's response? Well, we didn't make this up. In fact, what does he say at the end of verse 16? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he elaborates on what he means by majesty. Verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So he recaps this event in verse 17 for us. He gives us an idea of what he's referring to. And what he's saying is what we caught a glimpse of, me and James and John, when we were on this mount and Jesus was transfigured before us, what we saw was a trailer for the movie. This was a precursor for what ultimately will happen when he returns. He received honor and glory. So this was not an isolated event just for the benefit of the three men who were eyewitnesses, but this was meant to be a testimony that Jesus' word was true, specifically that he would return in similar and more clear glory. Because what Jesus was doing is he was peeling back the curtain for his apostles to allow them to see a glimpse of the glory so that they could supply this testimony to the church to say, we have seen the glory of Jesus and he will return with it completely unveiled. Now the question seems to rise, at least it does in my brain, maybe yours, that only three men were witnesses to this transfiguration. How is that a good rebuttal for false teaching? Because all the false teachers have to say, right, is, 
Yeah, Peter, it's great that you and James and John think you saw what you saw and think you heard what you heard, but we're still here. Christians are still suffering. Christians are still dying. Why is this any evidence for what you're saying? Well, Peter says he has evidence and that this is sufficient evidence for two reasons. One, Peter is an eyewitness of Christ's glory as an apostle. So Peter, along with these other apostles, have been set aside by Jesus specifically to teach and found the church. And that's how we come to the New Testament, written by these apostles. So he says, one, he was an eyewitness to Christ's glory as an apostle of Jesus. But the second aspect is that he was an ear witness to this voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice that he places just as much emphasis on what he saw as what he heard. That what this voice said is important and telling and foundational. Because when Peter first heard this, whether he recognized what this voice was actually saying or not, he certainly recognizes it now. He recognizes in retrospect that this voice is not speaking a completely new word, but a word that was already spoken. You can turn back, but we're just going to read it real quick. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So David, writing this psalm, knows that the Lord has something in mind for his son, for his offspring. And that's because God has given him this promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 When your days are fulfilled, God is speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so as Peter is writing this passage, pinning this letter to these churches, he certainly has this idea in mind, that this voice is not saying something arbitrary, but it's speaking about a promise that God had already made, that this one who is transfigured before them, that is receiving this glory, is also receiving honor by this voice, establishing him and making clear that this one is the offspring of David. This one is the promised Messiah to come. Because whenever you arrive to the end of the Old Testament and what the churches at this time would have had access to, right, because the New Testament is still being written, they would have had access to the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. But their Hebrew scriptures ends with people in exile, with People banished from the land with Rome taking over the promised land with no Messiah in sight. And so when you arrive to the end of the Hebrew scriptures, the question that it begs is, has God forgotten his promises and has God forgotten his people? And when we come to the New Testament, the resounding answer to these questions is no, he has not. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, will go as far as to say, for all of the promises of God find their yes in this one. 
They find their yes in him. So by emphasizing the voice and by emphasizing the voice confirming what they're seeing, what Peter's saying to these false teachers is that you don't have issues with my words, you have issue with God's word. And this is telling and instructive for us. Because we live in a day and an age, we live in a time and a society that says my experience is ultimate. I get to define my my own reality. I get to set my own identity, we hear so often. This is what's being fed through media and to our kids, that they get to define their own reality. And the God of the Bible says something very different. Our experience is not authoritative. We don't get to say, just because I see it this way and I experience it this way, that makes it true. God has not hardwired us that way. We require a word from the outside to give us a framework by which we can understand our experience. And so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle sent to the church, an eyewitness of Jesus' life himself, an eyewitness of the resurrection, an eyewitness of the transfiguration, you know what he does? He submits his experience to the word of God. How much more should we? And it's with these thoughts in mind that Peter shifts to the second half of our section, verses 19 and 21. Let's just read them again as a reminder. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." See, verse 19 serves as the crux for Peter's argument. And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. What is this prophetic word he's referring to? Well, most certainly he seems to be referring to the Old Testament as a whole. Okay? He might have specific passages in mind as he's writing this, but he doesn't share those specifically. So we can assume, based on the course of his argument, that he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. Because like we said, they don't have the New Testament. It's being written. It's being sent to them in letter form to be read in their congregations. And as an eyewitness to that testimony, to Jesus' transfiguration, what does he say about the whole prophetic word? That it's more fully confirmed. He's saying in part that the transfiguration is a fulfillment in part of that prophetic word. There were specific prophecies about Jesus' glory being revealed. And he's saying it is a fulfillment. But the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, the rest of the law and the prophets holds up in the same way. And it's confirmed not just by the transfiguration, but all the events that have led up to Peter writing this letter to churches that have been established. 
All these churches would have to do is they would look at their existence and what brought them to this point and they would say, yeah, God's word is true. That's the reason we're here. Because while they wouldn't have been able to read at this time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, many of them would have been eyewitnesses to Jesus's life or had family members who were eyewitnesses to their life or they had the apostles in the church to remind them that the Messiah had indeed come, that he had been born as it had been told, that he lived as it was told. And he even, we read this with our students this morning, Luke 24, he even taught about how all the law and the prophets were about him. And he had been rejected as it had been foretold. He had died in accordance with the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. But then gloriously, he'd been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and he had promised to return. See, Peter's saying, look at what God has done. Look at how God has proven himself faithful And God has written you a check that says he will return for his people. You can take this check to the bank. God is good for it. His word is true. But then where does he go? He speaks about the access to this word. What does he say? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So when he says that, You may think, well, this is isolated to the apostles. They have this prophetic word that none of the rest of us lowlives have, that none of us, the rest of us peons have, right? What does he say? To which you will do well to pay attention. He's writing to churches, so we have to take this in context. To which you, churches, churches of this Jesus, pay attention to this word. See, Peter is rejecting the idea that the word of God is meant for a few or meant for a religious elite. Rather, it is meant for the people of God to feast upon, to mine the riches therein. So brothers and sisters, I wonder if you view God's word as this type of life-giving source I mean, Peter goes as far as to say, look back in chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Do you view the word as your source of life, your source of security? Because that's clearly how Peter sees it. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you have claimed Christianity at some point, but your perception of Christianity is skeptical at best. Maybe you don't even believe it and someone has invited you and just because you're a friend, you're here. Well, first, welcome. Glad you're here. But I would invite you to take your skepticism, to take your questions to this word. See, there are religions out there, there are worldviews out there that are fearful of questions because they fear that they don't have answers or they're afraid of the conclusions that their answers give. But this is not the case with Christianity. This is not the case with the Bible. We believe that the answers hold up. They prove true. They prove right. And so we invite you to take your skepticism, to take your questions. We're not afraid of it because we know that this is God's word given to us. 
and his word will prove true. And so if that's, if that's you this morning and, and you're curious, you have questions, you have skepticism, I'd invite you not only to read, to dive into this word, but dive in along with somebody else who is a believer, who is a Christian. Ask them questions, okay? For those of you who are members of Southside, you might get squirming like, I'm not sure if I can answer those questions. It's fine. God's word is the one that will answer the questions, okay? Work alongside, be faithful. So if you're skeptical, ask those questions. We invite them. Now, back to believers. What does Peter say we will find when we pay attention to this word? Pay attention to this word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. See, when we get this image in our brain, we might think of a child who's afraid of the dark. But rather, I think what Peter's referring to is you're locked in a room and you don't know how to get out. Where darkness shrouds any hope of escape or relief. And the reason I say this is because in the context, he's continually trying to remind the believers that Jesus is truly returning. And I think when Peter writes this word, dark place, he has in his mind something very specific. See, at 65 AD, the church is going through immense and intense persecution from Rome. Nero is over Rome at this point, and most of you know Nero is famous for burning the city of Rome. But what Nero is also famous for is he looked for a scapegoat, and he found one in this new sect, in this new belief system called Christians. Listen to an account of Tatticus, a Roman historian. He says this. Now, Tatticus isn't a believer. He's just writing what he sees. To get rid of the report that he'd burned the city, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty to Christianity. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired." Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer. See, this is the dark place that Peter's referring to. See, Christians at this time were not just fearful that they would lose their social status because, one, they didn't have it. They were fearful for their own lives, for the lives of their loved ones. They were fearful that they, when they would gather on Sunday mornings, which they were probably already gathering on Sunday mornings at this point, that their numbers would be lessened, not because so-and-so was sick or so-and-so was out of town to see family. They were fear that their numbers would be lessened because their brothers and sisters were being used as candlelight for the party the night before. And Peter has the audacity to say that this word is a light to this people, 
You don't see a way out of this suffering. You don't see a way out of this pain, but there is light that can provide hope in this dark place. And it's found in no other place but God's word. Brothers and sisters, if you're in a place of suffering and pain, the light in your dark place is God's word because it reveals God's promises to his people. And this is our lifeblood, that we believe God's promises. So why is it a light? Well, because it promises that Christ will return in justice and vengeance for his people. And that's why he says, you do this, This is a temporary measure. This light in a dark place is temporary because one day it will be all light. And when will that happen? When the day dawns. I mean, just get the imagery here. You're in this dark room and there's this small candle that's providing this small sphere of light. And that small sphere of light is the only source of vision that you have. Nothing else makes sense. You can't see anything. But then all of a sudden... You can't see that candle anymore because the sun has risen. And even that light is dimmed because there will be a day where we won't need faith because we will have sight. He's saying we have faith in God's word until our sight proves true, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The day, the last day where Jesus does in fact return for his people is not reflected only in Jesus physically returning and bringing restoration for the world, but where does that restoration also take place? Within our own hearts. God is restoring, as we sang and heard read so clearly, that he is restoring all things, restoring all things to himself. So he Peter in these last two verses explains our confidence that these things are true. And our confidence that these things are true is not because of the men who spoke or wrote these words, but in the God for whom they spoke. Verses 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Peter is saying that we don't get to make up our own interpretation for specifically what the Old Testament says. We don't get to set our own ideas and our own interpretation on what it means. Why? Because God is taking care of both ends of the deal. See, verse 21 tells us, for no prophecy of scripture was ever produced by the will of man. But how? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then we're carried here about what the Spirit is doing within the lives of these men. It's the same word that Peter uses to describe this voice from heaven. It says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him, that's the same word as carried along by the Holy Spirit, He's wanting to create the image of God speaking from the heavens and God riding through the prophets. They are the same word. It is God's word to his people. And so God is the ultimate author through these men carried along by the Holy Spirit. But back up to verse 20. Who is responsible for the interpretation? Knowing this first and foremost, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
He's saying that God is responsible for both ends. He's responsible for the authorship and then he's responsible for the interpretation. And what I think he's specifically referring to is what we see in the New Testament. See, God has designed it so that we read our Bibles backwards. We understand the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Jesus makes really clear in his ministry and the rest of the New Testament bears this out that the scriptures are only understood rightly when we see them through the lens of Jesus. And so we read these things backwards and we understand the Old Testament because of the New Testament. Things were shrouded in mystery. And when the Bible talks about mystery and we talk about mystery in the, in the Christian faith, it's this idea that God had a truth that was once shrouded that is now made clear. And that seems to be what God is doing with this New Testament. He reveals to us the meaning of the old. And what we see is that all of it points in the same direction. So if you're here this morning and you have never considered the claims of Christianity, considered the claims of this Jesus, I would invite you to do so even this morning. To consider what it means if Jesus truly is returning. Well, then what hope do I have? Well, the answer to that question is, in and of yourself, none. The only hope that you have is that this Jesus bestows grace upon you. And the way that he does that is by dying on the cross in the place of sinners who look to him in faith and repentance. And if you're here this morning and you never thought about those things or never really understood what it meant to put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to find a believer that you know in this room and ask them. Ask them about what that means. And we'd love to, as members of the same body, walk through those things together. But what does this word specifically say to the saints of Southside Baptist Church? First, we are reminded that God still speaks today. God still speaks to his people. But we shouldn't spend our time and our lives looking for some extra biblical word from above. In fact, and I'm going to go as bold as to say, we should be cautious and suspicious of any word that claims to be of God that is not from the scriptures. Because if we start to accept those things, then we become susceptible to the false teaching just like the audience in this letter. Rather, we should find all confidence, along with Peter, that God has given his sufficient word to direct us now. I mean, I can read it again, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Second, we should strive to know God using the means by which he has provided Peter would suggest to us that he's not better off by having been an eyewitness. He's saying the sure word, the sure word that makes these promises clear and shows that they are true is accessible to the church, not just the religious elite, not just the apostles. It's accessible to the church. Why? Because God loves us. He wants to make clear that his word is for us. And so what do I mean by the means God has provided? Well, you may hear these described as ordinary means of grace. This is not top-tier Christianity. This is normal, base-level, Bible-described Christianity. I think J.C. Ryle puts it well. The means of grace 
are such as Bible reading, private prayer, and regularly worshiping God in church, wherein one hears the word taught and participates in the Lord's Supper. And this is how God has designed his people to know him and to grow him by reading the Bible on their own and by gathering with other believers in the context of a local church and hearing that word taught, sung, and practiced in Lord's Supper and baptism. It seems so simple. It seems so ordinary. Yet this is the way that God has prescribed for his church to grow and his believers to flourish by using the ordinary means of grace. See, by supplying us with the word more fully confirmed, he has given us what we need. And that's why we here at Southside seek to center our lives around this word. Because we believe this word is not a textbook, it's not a reference book, but it is living and active. And when we open it and when we read it, we hear God's word, but more than that, we see God. close, I want to read just real briefly from John chapter 1. And this gives us an idea of what this word reveals to us. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, do you hear the similarities between what Peter has written and what John writes here? He keeps going. And again, listen for the parallels. It's incredible. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did not receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come from Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known.